Happy Sabbath, brethren. I hope you're all doing well. It's good to be able to speak with you today. I hope you're excited about this day. This is God's weekly holy day, a blessing of a holy day every week that makes us stop and rest and reflect on our purpose, our calling, and our incredible potential. Brethren, have you ever felt cocky, like you're the only one right? Perhaps like you're the only one who understands something. You've got a special insight. Do you ever feel like anyone is wrong around you? Or you're the only one who's right? Or have you ever had a fleeting thought along these lines? Think about a person that perhaps you're having difficulty with right now. Have you ever been tempted with the thought of, I'm more righteous than they are, or maybe... I'm more humble than they are, or maybe I know more than that person. If you were God, what attitude would you want to see in the people that you made to serve you? Think about that. As a parent, and many of you are parents or have been parents, many of you would like to be parents, so think about it from that perspective. What type of attitude did you desire, do you desire, would you desire? in your own children. Why is it of paramount importance for you and for me to remain humble in this life? How can we maintain humility while we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Think about that for a minute. As we grow and overcome, as we come to deeper knowledge and deeper understanding of the truth of God, how can we still stay humble, realizing what we've been given to know and understand and been called to? Brethren, my purpose today is to review with you and to take a deep look at, to deeply examine probably the most important, the most powerful tool, the most powerful weapon in Satan the devil's arsenal. When we look at all of the tools that he has, and that he uses, and that he deploys. This one is the root of all of them. My purpose today, brethren, is to review with you the topic of pride and its godly opposite, humility. Then I want to give you a couple of ways that you and that I can continue to grow in humility, to increase godly humility within ourselves with the help of the Almighty God. Brethren, this topic is vital for you and me. It's vital for us now, near the end of the age, as we approach Christ's second coming, as we think about Satan going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, knowing that he's got a very short time left to do his dirty work on this earth. Brethren, what's pride? If somebody on the street walked up to you and asked you, what is pride? Or, more realistically, if a new person came through the door of where you meet for services, how would you define pride if they asked you? Merriam-Webster and many other dictionaries define pride, but I want to use some biblical definitions using Strong's exhaustive concordance, looking at several of the words from the Hebrew and the Greek that refer to pride. Pride is pomp. What is pomp? It's self-inflation. It's self-aggrandizement. It's lifting oneself up, isn't it? Pride is arrogancy. 
to be arrogant, to think that I know more than anybody else. I have some special insight that you don't have. That's arrogancy. There's positive aspects of pride, though. Pride is excellency or majesty. If you think about a king or a queen, royalty that perhaps you've seen, we talk about them having an air of pride. And sometimes they literally do look down on people. But pride doesn't have to be arrogancy. It can be knowing what you've been called to. We should have a proper type of pride in the fact that we, you and I, and not just you and I, but everyone in the world around us has been made in the image of the Almighty God. He made us to bring us into His family one day. We should take pride in that fact, godly pride, positive pride, and also be humbled through that fact that we've been called to something very, very special. We as first fruits now, but that all of this world, the human beings in this world, were made for something very special. So there's a, there's a positive aspect of pride, but there's also negative. And we're going to talk about that negative, ungodly, satanic aspect of pride today as we contrast that with humility. Pride also means swelling. What do you think of when you think of swelling? A person swelling. A person is swollen there, puffed up, which would lead us to a, a different topic. We're a ways away from the Passover at this point, but we should be examining ourselves over and over again, especially on this topic, because, brethren, this topic, this concept, is the major tool Satan will use to try and destroy you and I. And historically, when we look back to the Word of God, we see he used this tool to destroy, to try and destroy everybody, including our Savior. And we'll take a look at that today. Pride means swelling. What do you think of when you think of a person being swollen? We have a saying in the United States that when someone is prideful, they get the big head. Their head sort of puffs up. Sometimes people say, you know what, they're so full of themselves they can't fit through the doorway because they're so swollen, they're so puffed up. It's interesting to consider pride from that vantage point and with, from those definitions. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, you know, it's interesting. God inspired King Solomon to say a number of things about pride, didn't he? Someone who had that same challenge in his own life. Proverbs 16, look at a familiar scripture, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride, being puffed up, being arrogant, being lifted up, goes before what? Destruction and a fall. We, we need to ponder over this for just a second. What does that mean? What, what image does that conjure up in your mind? You think about pride, being puffed up, goes before a fall. Have you ever seen a hot air balloon? Or a small balloon with a little bit of helium? And it goes up, and it goes up, and it goes up, doesn't it? And then what happens? It's up there for a while, and pretty soon it cools down, and gravity catches up with it, and it pulls it right back down. We have another saying in the Western world, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Think about it. Does it hurt more to stand up and fall over onto the ground? Or does it hurt more to get down on your hands and knees and sort of plunk over to the side? What about when you're laying on your belly? Can you fall from that position of being very low? 
No, obviously. What if I get up on this podium and I fall off of it? It's going to hurt even more than when I'm standing, isn't it? What if I get up on top of a 10-story building and I fall? The higher I am, the more it hurts when I fall. The higher I am, the more likely it is to be pulled back down to the ground with gravity. Pride comes before a fall. You can't fall when you're on the ground. You're already down. We have to be lifted up or lift ourselves up in order to fall. Verse 19, better to be of a humble spirit with who? With the people that are high? No. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly, the people who are down low, being humble with them, than it is to divide the spoil, enjoying all the wealth and the riches and the wonderful things with the proud the swollen, the lifted up individuals. Let's look at another scripture, Proverbs 18. God is so descriptive in His Word. When we look at the words He chooses to use, because all of these words were inspired to be here, weren't they? 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that all of Scripture, every word in here is inspired by God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. God inspired the writers, in this case, King Solomon, to put these words down specifically to paint a picture to show us what His will is for us. Proverbs 18 and verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. It's pumped up. It's arrogant. It's full. It's lifted up. Before honor is humility. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Before honor is humility. Humility, being low. What does honor do? What, are, what happens when you are honored, when I'm honored? We are lifted up, aren't we? But who lifts us up when we're honored? Somebody else. Hopefully God. Does, does that scripture there, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, before honor is humility, does that remind you of any other stories? Perhaps a story that Jesus Christ told? I think of the story that Jesus Christ told or the warning that he gave, he actually said, Beware when you go to eat at the table of a rich man. Remember the, the, the parable? He said, When you go to eat at the table of a rich man, beware. Don't eat too much. But where did he say to sit? Don't sit at the high seat, the high position, right next to the king or to the master. Where should you sit? Down at the other end of the table, at the lowest seat. And why did he say that? He said, because if you sit at the seat of a master or right next to him in one of those high seats and you don't belong there, the master will publicly take you, the king will take you and publicly set you down, put you down to your place because you've elevated yourself up. But what happens if we sit clear down at the other end at the lowliest seat at the table? Well, if we belong there, there's no disgrace. Nobody makes a big deal out of it because we're sitting where we belong. But... If we don't belong there, if we belong higher, then the king or the master will move us up. We leave it to the higher-ranking people. We leave it to God to move us up. That's what I think of when I read this verse. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. You know, we put ourselves up, and then destruction comes and puts us back down. But before honor, before we are lifted up, we're lowly, we're humble, we have humility. Let's look at one more proverb quickly, Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 and verse 23. Similar related scripture here, Proverbs 29, 23. 
A man's pride will bring him low. If we lift ourselves up, we will bring ourselves back down through that pride. But the humble in spirit will retain honor. Which do you want? Do you want honor? Do you want to be honored? Or do you want to be looked at as though you deserve to be low? How does God want to look at us? God wants to elevate us. But if we elevate ourselves, we remove God's opportunity to elevate us. And he has to put us down before he can bring us back up. It's all about attitude, isn't it? Let's look at 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is talking here to the young minister, Timothy, giving him some wise advice. And, and through Timothy, passing that advice on to us as well. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6. Um, actually, let's back up. A little bit more. Yeah, we'll break in here. These are the qualifications for overseers, the qualifications for an elder, for a minister. Um, the elder, verse 6, the, the minister, someone you want to ordain to that office, is not to be a novice, not to be a new person or a new convert. Why? Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation of the devil. You don't want to take a new person who's coming to understand the truth. They're relatively new. They haven't been around the block, so to speak, spiritually. They're, they're coming to a deeper knowledge of the truth. They're excited. They're zealous. But they haven't been tried and tested yet. You don't want to take them and possibly ruin their faith because you put them up, you elevate them into a spiritual position too soon. Think about it. What could happen? If I'm elevated to a position of a minister too soon... I might come in and say, wow, look at the opportunity I have. I might be humble to start with. And then I start looking around, wow, I've only been in the church for a year, been baptized for a year. Look at these people. They've been baptized for 30, 35, 40 years. Why aren't they here? I must have some special ability. And I start looking down on people pretty soon, puffed up with the position I've been given because I don't have the strength of character yet to handle that responsibility. And so there is a warning, isn't there? Don't, don't ordain people too soon, lest they become puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride can do that. Pride can puff us up, not just people who are ordained too soon, but all of us, if we're not careful. Question for you. If we're full of pride, if we have pride in us, who is our master? Who is our ruler? Who rules over us? Who is our king if we're full of pride? I think you know the answer, but let's go to Job for a minute and see what God says in the book of Job. Job chapter 41. At this point, God is teaching Job. Job has shared his perspective. Job has... Um, defended himself to his friends, defended why he is being unjustly treated. And then God breaks in, in about chapter 38, uh, and he begins talking to Job and reminding Job of who he is as the creator, God is. Interesting discussion. You may want to go back and read Job 38 through uh, 41. And Read it from the perspective of God, keep me humble. Show me my per, uh, your perspective that I need to have. 
Job 41, though, let's go to the end of the chapter here. We're going to read verse 34. This is talking about Leviathan. Now, Leviathan, the commentaries describe as some unknown sea creature. Well, as we read this, we realize very quickly the analogy is to Satan the devil. As we look at this, verse 34, He, that is Leviathan, beholds every high thing, and he is king over all of the children of pride. Now, is some unknown sea creature the king over the children of pride, or is Satan the devil? Satan is the king over the children of pride. When we have pride in us, when we're puffed up with pride, we've got to be We've got to recall, who is my king? If I'm falling into this trap, who am I falling under the authority of? The king of pride. Ezekiel 28. Let's take a peek at Ezekiel 28, and we're going to ponder over Ezekiel 28 for a few minutes here. In Ezekiel 28, God is talking about the king of Tyre, the king of a, a port city on the Mediterranean, the east side of the Mediterranean, powerful trading port city at one point in time. But as we begin reading through Ezekiel 28, we realize very quickly this is not talking about a physical king of Tyre. It's talking about somebody else. It's talking about Lucifer and how he became saint and the devil. And cross-reference this with Isaiah chapter uh, 14. But Ezekiel 28, let's start reading here. Moreover, the word of the Lord, verse 11, came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him thus, says the Lord God. So take up a a lamentation. Take up sorrow, deep sorrow. When you lament over something or someone, you're sorrowful. You feel very sad. You feel down. You wish it could have turned out better. Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Let's read now in verse 12. You were the seal of perfection. The seal of perfection. We would say maybe the poster child of perfection. When you look in the dictionary under the word perfection, his picture was right next to it. He was the seal of perfection. Full of what? Full of wisdom. Brilliant, wise, and perfect in beauty. This is key, and we'll see this again. He was perfect in beauty. Brethren, how difficult would it be to stay humble if you were perfect in beauty? When you go home and you look in the mirror and you see yourself, what do you see? Well, certainly you should see someone made in the image of God, and you should be proud and excited about that, proud in a a positive way, godly way. But... Most of us, when we look in the mirror, see, hmm, boy, if I could change that person, that face, that body, I'd shrink the nose and I'd shrink the ears and I'd change the hair color and I'd change the hairline and, you know, the the thighs are a little bit too big and the calves are a little bit too small and, well, I'd do something with this middle area. It's too big or too small. Maybe gain a little bit of weight. Maybe lose a lot of weight. Uh, Change the, the chest size. Many of us aren't happy with what we see. We know that we're not made perfect. Go stand in front of the mirror. Close the door. Take your clothes off. Are we made perfect in beauty? No. 
we are made the way God made us, and then we take care of the temple of God's Holy Spirit in different ways, and it changes, and we age. And what was once beautiful becomes old and wrinkly and baggy. That's the way God made it, in part to keep us humble. But this creation was made perfect in beauty. It says you were in Eden, the garden of God. All of a sudden we know this is not a physical king of Tyre. Eden existed long before Tyre ever came about. And in fact, we're going to go further back in time here in just a minute. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Did he have breastplates Did he of, with stones all over it? Were they embedded in his skin? We don't know. The description of a cherub in Ezekiel chapter 1 doesn't tell us exactly. The workmen, or excuse me, um, stones, precious stones were the covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, an emerald with gold. Not just the stones, but set in, in gold settings. Beautiful. When you see a dark stone with a beautiful gold around it, the contrast is amazing. Very pretty. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was a musician. And the pipes and the timbrels were made for him. Who made these instruments? God made these instruments for him to play, for him to use, to make music with. He was beautiful and wis beautiful. He was perfect in beauty. He was wise. He was an incredible musician, and he was created. He wasn't there from the beginning. He was made. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. He was of the cherubim, a special group of angels that God made, special angels, high-ranking angels, and he was extra special because he was the anointed cherub or of the anointed cherubs who cover. <clears throat> what does that mean? Think about it. What do we know about cherubs? When we look back to the Old Testament, we look back to the description of the tabernacle, when do we see cherubs? When we look at the Ark of the Covenant, if this is the Ark, you had two cherubs and their wings were facing each other over the center part of the Ark where the mercy seat was depictive of the throne where there apparently were cherubs or are cherubs with their wings over the throne of God. When you look at the tabernacle in that holy of holies where the ark was, there were two giant cherubs carved, overlaid with gold, their wings spread out, and they touched each other, two of them. And from the, the tip of the wing of one cherub to the tip of the wing of the other cherub was approximately 35 feet, giant cherubs with their wings covering the room, the Holy of Holies. Lucifer was referred to as the anointed cherub who covered. It is very possible and likely that he was one of two who was on the throne of God, whose very wings had the privilege of covering the throne where the Father and the Son sat. Think about the honor Think about it. When you go back and you study the throne of God, in the images in the Scripture, it shows that all of the angels bowed down before the throne, the 24 elders, the angels around on the sea of glass, bowing down before, being lower than, humbled before the throne of God. 
And yet two cherub were given a special privilege to literally have their wings above the throne of God. Think about the position that Lucifer was given. A powerful position. He was beautiful. He was perfect in beauty. He was special. He was anointed. He was separated. He had an opportunity that only one other creation in the entire creation of God had. When we go to Revelation chapter 5, we see that there, there's a number of angels that is mentioned. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. There are over 100 million angels on the throne of God. Does that include the third that left? We don't know. But that's a lot of angels. And Lucifer was elevated along with one other to an incredible position. What would happen to you if you were separated, given that kind of honor? How would you react? Let's read on. He was the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. I put you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, the throne of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. What are fiery stones? Have you ever looked up in the sky at night? And seeing the fiery stones, he walked back and forth between them. We're told in, elsewhere in Scripture that God's throne is in the furthest part of the north of the sky. Many fiery stones. In fact, we know, we look at the number of stars in our galaxy. Scientists have estimated some hundred billion stars just in our galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. And they think there might be as many as 400 billion galaxies. Lots of fiery stones. He walked back and forth in the midst of them. It says, verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Perfect from the very beginning. What would that be like? I think it's Paul that talks about how we were conceived in sin. He was conceived, he, or made, created in perfection. Given one of the top positions in the angelic world. What would that do to a person, to a being? Perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Iniquity became. Sin became. Then what happened? Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading. Trading of what? Items? Thoughts? Ideas? perspectives, opinions? We don't know exactly. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. How did that happen, brethren? Filled with violence. What pushes us to violence? Jealousy, envy, hatred push us to violence. <clears throat> You became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing. Out of the mountain of God, I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Isaiah 14 talks about this a little bit more. And it tells us that this individual, this created individual, wasn't happy with his wings just over the throne of God. What did he want? He wanted the seat of the Creator, the created tried to take the position of the Creator. And God said, no. Adios, amigo, you're out of here. 
How long did this take? How long did it take for this perfect being, perfect in wisdom and beauty, to get to the point where he wanted to usurp, to take the very throne of God? Why did it happen? Verse 17, your heart was lifted up. My margin, my margin says you were proud, filled with yourself, swollen. Your heart was lifted up. Why? Because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. Why? For the sake of your splendor. You were so beautiful. What does he look like? He's a cherub. Ezekiel chapter 1. He has four faces. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, the face of a human being. One on each side of his head. And we're told that when he moves in different directions, he doesn't have to even turn his head because his, his, he has a face in that direction already. We're told that he does have a body. He has arms. In fact, he has wings, four, one on each side of his body. And under each wing, there's a hand. And then he's got legs and feet of a calf. And on the sides of him are big wheels with eyes. He's created perfect in beauty. But that's a very different looking creature than you and I, isn't it? God made him perfect in beauty. It's going to be amazing when we have the opportunity to see caribs someday. But when he looks in the mirror, what does he see? He sees a cherub. What do you see when you look in the mirror, brethren? Genesis 1.26, God made man in his image, in his likeness. We are made to look like God. We're made to become like God. 1 John 3.2, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, Christ, for we shall see him as he is. Satan became corrupt. Lucifer became corrupt, became Satan because of his beauty and his splendor. And he was cast out of the throne of God. Look where pride took him. It puffed him up and up and up and up and up until he thought he was deserving of the very throne of God. He wasn't happy being in the highest ranks of the angelic world. Brethren, pride is dangerous. It's destructive. Turn with me to Obadiah chapter 1. <clears throat> Obadiah chapter 1. We see a warning here. Yes, against Esau and Edom. But it's a warning to us as well, isn't it? Obadiah chapter 1 after the book of Amos. And verse 3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? People can't bring me down. We, we're way up high. And I'm not going to go into the details of the prophecy here against Esau and Edom. But the warning is for you and I to heed. Pride is deceptive. Pride can lead us and will lead us astray, brethren, if we're not careful. Pride hides. It's not always right there in front of our face. I doubt very much that Lucifer fell overnight. How long did it take for a little tiny grain, fleck of pride, to begin to grow and grow and be fanned into flame till it led him to rebel against the Creator, God and Jesus Christ? Probably a long time. I don't know. Hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years? We'll be told one day how that happened.
Pride is deceptive, though, and if we're not careful, we can have it within us and not even recognize it. It will hide from us. Brethren, I encourage you, challenge yourself to search out and eliminate pride. Search for it. Pray to God. Fast about it. Help me see it. I want to share some song lyrics with you that I think are very, very telling. You know, Satan, Lucifer, we just read, had timbrels and pipes. He was a musician. There's a song that was written a number of years ago. And the lyrics talk about how I write the songs that make the whole world sing. I write the songs of love and special things. And I write the songs that make young girls cry. I write the songs. I write the songs. It talks about how the music makes you dance and it makes you do all these things. Brethren, who writes the songs? Is it, is it Barry Manilow, I think, or Neil Diamond? Who is it? Who's behind it? Maybe a master musician? The God of this age who inspires them? I think Satan reveals himself through music, among other things. And we'll see the revelation of him in the lyrics of this song. This song is by an American singer-songwriter by the name of Travis Tritt. He's a country-western writer. And he wrote a song called Foolish Pride. It's about a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who get in an argument. You ever been in an argument with someone? Maybe even your husband or your wife? They get in an argument, it doesn't come to blows, but it's a powerful argument that has the potential to destroy their marriage. And what happens? He relives every word they spoke in anger, the song says. You ever done that? Had an argument with somebody? The argument's over and you just go over and over in your head what you've said, what they've said. Sometimes you come to see I was wrong. Other times, what does it do? It gets you more and more angry. Boy, if I could do that again, I'd say this, and I'd say that, and boy, I'd take that person down with words like you wouldn't believe. And you go over it and over it in your head. He relives every word they spoke in anger. He walks the floor back and forth, and he punches out the wall because he's so angry. To apologize to her would be so simple wouldn't it? How hard is it to say, I'm sorry? How powerful, how healing is it to say, I'm sorry? I'm going to use some words here that we don't usually use in a sermon. <clears throat> Probably not appropriate for regular conversation, but I think they're appropriate here because they give us insight into the king of pride. He relives every word they spoke in anger. He walks the floor and he punches out the wall. To apologize to her would be so simple. But instead he cries out, I'll be damned if I crawl. Think about it. Have you ever had that attitude? You come out of an argument and you think, you know what? I am not going to apologize to that person. I don't care what I said. That is a wretched person. They said wretched things about me, about my family, or whatever. Yeah, maybe if they repent to me and they apologize, I'll, re I'll apologize back. But I'm not going to be the first one. I'll be damned if I crawl back and do that. You see the attitude? The attitude of the king of pride. Brethren, what did it take for Satan, the devil, to try and take the throne of God? Can Lucifer, can Satan repent? Age-old question. 
Does God want him to? Would God want him to? Does God hate him? No, we just read in, in Ezekiel 28, God said, take up a lamentation. God made this perfect, beautiful creation. He loved him. He elevated him to a high position. He wanted him to be there for him. And instead, Satan rebelled. And God said, take up a lamentation. Cry big tears over what has happened. Can Satan repent? It's, not, it's probably not that Satan can't repent. It's that he will not repent. Whose attitude is, I'll be damned if I crawl? Satan the devil. I'll be damned if I crawl back to the throne of God and bow down and say I'm sorry to him. Brethren, this is powerful. And what's the truth? He is damned. He is condemned to the lake of fire. And brethren, if we don't capture pride early and get rid of it, we will be damned. If we don't crawl back and get on our knees and bow down and say, God, I'm sorry, we will be condemned to burn up in the lake of fire and to become ashes under the feet of the saints. This is powerful stuff in the Word of God, but it should get our attention because pride can destroy us. It will destroy us if we are not careful. When people leave the church, brethren, do they leave because they're humble and lowly? Do we have people, humble, lowly people, leaving the church in droves? No. What does it take to leave the church and start your own church and elevate yourself up to a high position? It's not humility lowliness of mind, is it? Pride is powerful. Let's contrast pride. What's its godly opposite? Humility. Let's take a peek at some scriptures on humility. What does God have to say about humility? 1 Peter 5. God, through the apostle Peter, makes some powerful observations about humility. And of course, he, he contrasts them here with pride as well. Let me catch up to you. It's hard to talk and turn at the same time. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we will start reading in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Submit. Be down below. Give yourself over to them to be taught by them. Submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Clothe yourself. Wrap yourself up with what? Humility, something that keeps you low, submissive, wanting to learn, wanting to be taught by these people around you. We're told we're all to submit to each other. It doesn't just say, if you're not ordained, submit to the ordained people. It doesn't just say, wives, submit to your husbands. It says everybody submit to everybody. You know what? I work with people in my church congregations who know more about certain things than I do. We do a work party, and we're building something. And I've got a contractor who's just a regular church member, I have to submit to him in building something because he knows more than I do. And if I try and trump him, we're going to mess the project up. We've got to submit to each other, brethren, appreciating, understanding that everybody is called by God and is called to be a member of the family of God. We can't hammer down people. We do need to respect those in authority over us, obviously, but we're to submit to each other. 
to have humility as we interact with each other. God wants that from us. What does Isaiah 66, 2 say? <clears throat> Isaiah 66, verse 2. Most of us have this memorized. For all those things my hand has made, and all the things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look. Who will God look to? He who is poor, of a contrite spirit, quiet, humble, and trembles at my word. Does God look to someone who elevates themselves? You know the answer, no. God looks to a, a humble, teachable person. Who are you, brethren? Who are you? As I point the finger at you, and what happens? I've got three pointing back at me. Who am I? Am I poor and of a contrite spirit? Is Scott Winnale that way? I've got to be that way, brethren, or I will not be in the kingdom of God. God will not give me His power for eternity. If I'm not humble, I know it. I won't be there. Let's look at another scripture. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Zephaniah, chapter 2, and verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. You humble people, you meek, you teachable people, seek the Lord. Who have upheld His justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day that, of the Lord's anger. We're to look for humility. We're not to just wait for it to come get us. We've got to seek it out. We've got to ask for it. God, give it to me. Help me find it. Help me be that way. We've got to look for these things. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I won't turn there for sake of time, but they talk about removing the plank from your own eye before you try and take the speck or the splinter out of someone else's eye. Have you ever had a splinter? A tiny piece of wood or metal that gets stuck in your finger? It hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes it can be very, very tiny. You can barely see it, and it still hurts. But the analogy is what? Remove the plank from your eye. Have you ever seen lumber before? Um, you know, and then we have these... Two by fours. They're two inches by about four inches wide, and they may be eight or twelve or sixteen feet long. And you pick one of those things up, and it's very long. What happens if you st if that's sticking out of your eye? Well, you turn around to look at somebody, and everybody ducks, don't they? Because you're going to take their head off with this big beam that keeps coming across. How ironic is it if I've got this thing sticking out of my eye, and I walk up to somebody? to tell them their problem and tell them about the, the splinter and the speck in their eye. And they've got a duck because this thing's going to hit them in the head. So they're down below us saying, okay, what do you want? Well, you've got this problem, and we've got this big glaring beam in our eye. <laughs> Humility. We've got to be humble, look at our own situation first, get our act cleaned up, and then in love we can help other people. Colossians 2. Powerful scripture here as well. Something to ponder over, brethren. Think with me on this one. <clears throat> Colossians, chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul here talking to the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones in Colossae in Asia, Asia Minor. Colossians 2.18. He says, Let no one cheat you from your reward, take, uh, taking delight in false humility in the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. It says, Don't let yourself be deceived by those who practice what false humility have you ever seen false humility do you know what false humility is about 
It says, beware of those people. I can remember the church area we were in years ago and had the opportunity to meet with some people. They were good, down-to-earth people, salt-of-the-earth type people. And they came up and they introduced themselves warmly, welcomed us. And they basically, in humility, it appeared, said, you know, we're just humble people. We're not rich. We're not well-educated. We're just God's people trying to live God's way of life. And I thought, you know what, that's refreshing. I'd come from a big city and been around all kinds of people who thought they were something. And these people didn't think they were a whole lot. They were good people. They're wonderful people that we love very much. Well, we were in that church area for a while, a number of years. And several years later, it would, this would happen regularly, they would come up and just remind me of the fact that they were humble people. You know, I'm just a humble person. I don't think, don't think a whole lot about my opinion. And this happened over and over. And I, was, I began to wonder, why do these people keep telling me how humble they are? Something doesn't seem quite right here. It doesn't square. Well, a couple of years later, they began to tell me about how the church was right on these 20 or 30 different things and how we need to change our doctrine in 20 or 30 different directions. And I began to realize, looking back, these people were showing a false humility. They were proud of being humble. Brethren, have you ever been proud of being humble? If you have been, if you are, if you even see an inkling of that in yourself, beware. I've got to be aware of this. We have to look at ourselves and ask God to help us see so that we don't become proud of being humble because that's pride. And pride will come before a fall. Brethren, I want to give you two ways that you can become more humble, that I can become even more humble. We've got to do this. Why did God love David in the way he did? Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because David humbled himself amazingly. Way number one, how can we become more humble? Brethren, remember who you are. I've got to remember who I am. Does God need you? Does God need me, Scott Winnell? No, He doesn't need us. He created us. He wants us in His kingdom, but He doesn't need me. You know what? If I have the wrong attitude, God will take me out of the way. He doesn't need me. He will put somebody else in to do my job, and probably even better. God doesn't need us. He wants us in His life. I'm not going to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. We sing a hymn about this. You should have this memorized. If you don't, I encourage you, put it into your memory. What does God say? Who does He call? Does He call the mighty and the wise? No, not many wise are called, are they? Not many mighty, as the song goes. Not many noble, brethren. Who does He call? God calls the weak in the base. He calls us. Why? Verse 29 says, to confound the mighty and the wise. So one day in the kingdom, perhaps in the white throne judgment period, when the mighty and the wise are struggling to overcome and they say, I can't do this, God can say, come here, put your name in there. I put my name in there, Scott Winnell. And God says, I want to tell you the story about Scott Winnell. I want to tell you the story about John Smith, about Helen Davis, about whoever you are. Look what they came from. They were weak. They were base. And look what they did. 
with Christ living in them. If they can do it, you can do it. God called us to confound the mighty and the wise, brethren, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. It's not us. It's Him in us. You know, Mr. Rod King gave a sermon a year and a half, two years ago, on humility. And he talked about how, or excuse me, about righteousness. And he talked about how any righteousness in us is not of us. If we are righteous or we have righteousness, it's because it's Christ living in us. That's his attribute in us. We can't be righteous aside and apart from Jesus Christ. Brethren, remember who you are. What does Zechariah 4, 6 say? Let's turn there. I think some of you know where we're headed. Zechariah, right before Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 6. He, he answered, and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How are they going to accomplish? How are they going to overcome? Not by might, not by human might, not by human power, but by the Spirit of God. Brethren, how do we overcome? How do we make progress in this life? How do we become more righteous? How do we become more humble? How do we become a better person? How do we become more like God? Is it because we just hunker down and we desire so badly that we're going to do it? Or is it because God's Spirit is working in us? You know the answer to that. I know you do. God's Spirit is what moves us forward. It's not our might. It's not our power. No matter how badly we desire to do it, if we don't let God live in us through the power of His Spirit, Galatians 2.20, it's not going to happen. So we've got to do that. Romans 3.23, what does that talk about? I'm not going to turn there for sake of time. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you admit when you're wrong? I've got to ask myself that. When I make a mistake, when I do something prideful, can I see it? Can I admit it that I have sinned, I've made a mistake? In trials, ask yourself, do you, do I, constantly point out the mistakes and the problems of others? Or am I willing to look at myself and say, what's my problem? Where am I missing? Brethren, I've got to do this too. I'm in a life and death struggle like you are to enter the kingdom of God. We all struggle. Ministry and brethren alike, we all struggle. And if we don't beat this thing with God's help, it will beat us. Who is righteous, brethren? Psalm 143. Who is righteous? Who is godly in that way? Psalm 143. And verse 2. Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. The psalmist writes, David writes, for in your sight no living one is righteous. No one living is righteous. No one. Not in God's sight. It's God, Christ, living in us through the power of the Spirit that gives us that righteousness. That should be humbling. Philippians 2. Paul writing here to another church area that he pastored, that he worked with, that he oversaw. Philippians chapter 2. And verse 3, he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility, let each esteem others better than himself. 
And I've got to ask myself, do I esteem others better than me? Do I realize, you know what, I'm nothing. If I have anything, it's because of God. Those people deserve probably more than I do. Do we esteem, lift them up higher than ourselves? It's a challenge. We can't do that alone, though. God has to put that in us. That's not human. That's not of human nature. That's not of Satan's nature. What about 1 Samuel? I'm not going to turn there. I'm going to paraphrase a story. Why was Saul taken out of the role of kingship of Israel? The first king, God picked him. He set him up. He was a a great-looking guy, a giant among people, maybe seven feet tall, handsome. Why did God take him out and say, you know what, Saul, you can't do this anymore? What was Saul's problem? And what was the contrast? Do you remember what happened when Samuel first went to anoint Saul as king? Where was Saul? He was a humble man. He was afraid. He didn't want to be in a crowd. He was hiding among the hay bales by the animals. They had to go find this big, big, tall dude because he was afraid to be in front of a bunch of people. He was very humble. What happened? His kingship changed him. He didn't stay close to God like he needed to. He got impatient, and he couldn't wait for the prophet to come to offer a sacrifice before going into battle, so he built an altar and offered the sacrifice himself. He elevated himself to the role of a spiritual leader in Israel. He took, he usurped that role. And God said, that's enough, Saul. When you were humble in in your own sight, I could use you as king. But now you've elevated yourself, and I can't use you anymore. Powerful role. Brethren, remember who you are. God called us because of our weakness, our baseness, our meekness, our humility, our teachability. Now, we're not supposed to remain weak and base. He called us to become something else. But we've got to maintain that humility as we go along through life. I want to give you one more key to overcoming, to becoming more humble, to remaining humble. As we've talked today, I think you see or have been reminded, this is no new truth, you've been reminded about how important humility is, true humility is, and how important it is to beat and get rid of pride. We've got to root it out, brethren, because the king of pride has a pride detector. You ever seen a metal detector? You take it and you run it along the ground and it clicks every time you hit or go over metal that may be buried. Satan's got a pride detector, so to speak. He knows when it's here. Brethren, he watches us like a hawk 24 hours a day. He sets his minions on us to watch and to look because pride is his trigger switch. It's a vehicle he can use to destroy. The second thing we can do, brethren, to stay humble is to fast regularly. Fast regularly. I don't mean I fast every year on the Day of Atonement. I mean regularly, once a month. Once every six weeks, once every two months at the most. And obviously there are some health conditions with some few who uh, 24-hour fasting can be very dangerous for. If you've got situations like that, if you're not sure, please see your minister about it. The odds are, though, you can adapt a fast if you're very sick or if you, you can't fast for 24 hours. You can adapt it to fit you, even if it's just a few hours with a focus. Work with your minister on that. But most of us have the health to do it. It's not comfortable. We don't like it. For some of us, fast is a four-letter word that we don't want to speak, say, or do. 
but I encourage you to use it. Psalm 35. Brethren, this is key to staying humble. This is key to beating pride. It's a tool God gave us that is so powerful and probably underutilized by most of us, including me. I try and do it on a regular basis, but I don't do it the way I would like to. I don't do it the way I think God really, really wants me to do it. I'm trying to learn, but I'm not there yet. Psalm chapter 35. In verse 13, Psalm 35, 13, David, again writing here, says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. And what did David do? I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. What did David do? He humbled himself with fasting. Brethren, one of the major purposes of fasting is to humble us. If we fast correctly... In a godly way, we should be humbled when we're done. Let's uh, look at another scripture here, Psalm 109. Psalm 109, and as you turn there, let me make a, a point too. Fasting, spiritual fasting, should not be combined with some kind of a health fast, a juice fast, a water fast. When we fast for spiritual reasons, we need to fast for spiritual reasons alone. Don't combine that with other things because you'll be deterred by the other reason. That's just the way human nature works. When you fast for spiritual reasons, make sure that's the only reason why you're fasting. Psalm 109, verse 21. Psalm 109, verse 21. But you, O God, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. Verse 24. This gives us an indication of what we should feel like when we fast. My knees are weak through fasting. My flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. Brethren, when you fast, your knees should be weak, near the end at least, from fasting. Your flesh... Uh, should be feeble from lack of fatness. You should feel tired. Why? Because part of the physical lesson, which is tied to the spiritual lesson in fasting, is we can't go without food for very long. We need it to sustain us. The spiritual lesson is we can't go without spiritual food, the Word of God, the bread of life, the living water, for very long because we'll begin to get weak, spiritually speaking. I remember talking to someone a while back, and they said to me, you know, fasting's easy for me. What's the point of it? And I thought, hmm. <laughs> we have a very different experience, because when I fast, even when I take in enough water, etc., I've got a headache by the end. My knees are weak. I'm tired out. And I am so thankful that there's going to be a meal at the end of it. In fact, sometimes when I fast, my brain gets fuzzy for the last couple of hours because my blood sugar drops and I just can't focus anymore. And so I asked this person, I said, how is it that you have so much energy when you're done fasting? I said, I don't know, it's just the way it is. And I thought for a minute, I said, before you start your fast, do you eat a, a real big meal? Do you drink lots of liquid? He said, yeah, every time. I make sure that when I go into fasting, I have plenty of water in me and I've, I've eaten a huge meal. And I thought to myself, hmm, so this person's eating enough for two days, 
right before he starts the fast, sure, by the end of the fast, 24 hours, he's still got enough food for another day inside of him. <laughs> That's not the way we should fast. Brethren, we should feel tired out by the end of it. If, if we eat a meal before we fast and we, we have plenty of energy at the end, it should teach us, you know what? Maybe my last meal should be lunchtime the day before. So we need to use fasting to humble ourselves. Brethren, if we fast the right way, it's hard to be proud when we're done. We shouldn't be able to be proud and arrogant when we're done. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4 because in Matthew chapter 4, we learn something very powerful about fasting from our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know the situation in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus Christ, <clears throat> shortly before the commencing of his ministry, went to the wilderness, didn't he, to fast. And then Satan confronted him. He knew he would have to confront who? The king of pride. He knew that's who he would have to confront. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led into the, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Would you be hungry after 40 days and 40 nights? This, by the way, is physically impossible. Human body cannot fast for 40 days and 40 nights without water. Without water, after about 10 to 12 days, the body systems begin to shut down. Your nervous system doesn't work. Your brain can't tell your heart to beat, your lungs to breathe, your kidneys to function. Within two weeks after a fast, virtually every, or after no water, virtually everyone will be dead who tries it. Physiologically, biologically, that's what happens. Fasting for 40 days is physically impossible without food and water. This was a miracle. God performed a miracle in His Son. Why did the Son of God have to do this? Forty days and forty nights, wouldn't three have been enough to get the point across? Jesus Christ knew what he was coming up against. We're told in Scripture elsewhere, he was tempted in all points as we are. He was tempted by pride. He knew he would be tempted by pride. He knew he was coming against the king of pride. And as we read through this, we will see that it's pride that Satan was trying to attack in Jesus Christ. He was trying to take down the very Son of God, the one who was destined to become the King of Kings and replace Him. He used pride to try and take Him down. Look at this. Verse 3, the tempter came to Him and He said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. There was probably more said here. Think about the situation. Who made Satan as Lucifer? Who created all things in heaven and on the earth? By him, for him, through him, all things were made. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Jesus Christ made the tempter. Not as the tempter. He became the devil on his own. But Christ made this being. God the Father through Christ made him. And so what does he do? He comes up to the one who made him and he says, Yeah, I remember when you were on the throne of God. And my wings were over you and I looked down on you. If you're the Son of God, if you're really that same guy, you know, you look a little different. Your hair is a different color, shorter. You know, it was white on the throne, and now it's brown. And whatever else he said, he's tempting. If you're really the, throne, the Son of God, you made everything, right? Heaven, earth, birds, plants, people, the Sabbath, the plan... Come on, you can turn rocks into bread, can't you? 
what is he doing? He's playing to pride. What was he hoping Christ would do? Yes, I'm the Son of God. Boom! And what happens? Bread, galore. That's what he was hoping for. Get him angry. Dig at him. Dig at that pride. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew he had been there from forever. He created all those planets out there. Satan wanted to get a rise out of him and attack him. And what did Jesus Christ do? Why did he have to fast and bring himself low? He he liable to have been crawling on the ground. He was so weak. What did Christ say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth out of the mouth of God. Brethren, he was humble. He was low. He knew who he was going to be dueling against here. And then what did the devil do? He took him to the holy city. And he set him where? In the basement of the temple? No. He took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, the very top. He lifted him up high. And he looked all around. And he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quoted Scripture. He quoted Scripture that the Son of God inspired to be written. He said, He shall give angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Come on, didn't you inspire that to be written, Jesus? About yourself? Prove it to me. Or was that just a beautiful poetic essay that you wrote in Psalms? Christ could have gotten angry, couldn't he? I'll show you this is what I meant. But that's not what Christ did. He was humble. He was low. He said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him where? Into the heart of the earth, the lowest depths. Or did he take him up high to the high, exceedingly high mountain? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. You know, Jesus... You prophesied it. You know what's coming. In just a few years, they're going to take you to court. They're going to call your mother names. They're going to call you a bastard child. They're going to treat you like that in front of everybody. They're going to whip the tar out of you with these whip strings that have shards of glass and rock and metal, and it's going to tear your flesh. And then when they're done, they're going to put you up and they're going to nail you on a stake. And it's going to hurt more than you've ever imagined. Jesus, remember when you were eight and you were a carpenter's kid and you were working with your dad and you hit your thumb with a hammer? You didn't break anything, but you remember how it swelled up and it hurt so bad and it got infected and it hurt for weeks? Remember how bad that hurt? That was nothing compared to what's going to happen. And let me tell you, I've got power and I can give you all of this now. You don't have to go through all of that. You don't have to hurt like that. There is another way. You guys forgot there was another way. You overlooked it. When you and the Father were planning, you missed it. I've got it now. He's puffing Christ up. And what happened? Christ was so humble and low because he'd fasted for so long to humble himself that he said what? You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. I'm not going to serve you. I only serve one, the Father of all. The devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered.
powerful lesson for us, brethren, about fasting. The Son of God felt it necessary to afflict his soul to an extreme because he knew that he could be tempted and drawn away by the devil. If he couldn't, why would the devil have wasted his time? He's brilliant. He's wise, perverted, but wise. Why would he have wasted his time? He knew he had a chance. Jesus Christ knew the devil had a chance, and he couldn't take the chance of trifling with that. Brethren, I encourage you, use fasting. We have to use it together regularly to keep ourselves low. Because if we don't, Satan will find the pride. He'll find the hidden pride, and he will elevate us. He'll puff us up from the inside, from which we'll have to fall. Brethren, God hates the attitude he can't work with, that prideful attitude, that know-it-all arrogant attitude. He can't teach us when we're that way. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. He can't guide us when we're like that. But God loves the humble. He gives opportunities to them. He blesses them. Ultimately, the humble will become what? Members of his family in his kingdom one day. Ask yourself and be honest and do this on a regular basis several times a year, maybe once a month. Ask yourself, how much pride do I have in me? And be honest. How much is there? Look for it. Search it out. Ask God to help you find it and destroy it. Brethren, do you have hidden pride? Or even pride that hides behind a veil of humility? Ask, look, knock, seek. Examine yourself on this, brethren. Ask God to show you where you may be falling short. Brethren, remember who you are. Use that point. Examine that. Use the tool of fasting. God called us, brethren, for an incredible purpose. And as long as we can remain humble and low and avoid pride and arrogance, we will be granted entry into the kingdom of God one day. Brethren, keep up the good work. You're doing well. Keep moving toward the kingdom of God. Keep trying to stay humble as you are. Keep growing in that area. Brethren, as we do this, as we more closely try to emulate our elder brother, Jesus Christ, we will come before God worthily or in a worthy manner, not only on the Passover, but when we bow down before him every day, asking for his help. Stay humble, brethren. Have God work with you to beat pride, because when we do, we will hear that saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And when we hear that trumpet blast, we'll rise in the air to meet Christ, and he will lift us up.